I just got the question. When will it be time for communion? I'm ready for that. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis 29. Uh, Genesis chapter 29 will be in 29 and 30. I think this is our roughly 30th sermon in the Genesis series. Um, it's been a pleasure so far. I think we might even finish it in the next calendar year, which is going to be great. As you're turning, I want to tell you about a man um, who's no longer with us. He passed away in 2008. His name was David Foster Wallace. Have you guys heard of him? David Foster Wallace. A few heads. He was a prolific writer, uh, thinker, an atheist, and tragically took his own life um, when he wasn't, wasn't much older than me. And uh, before he died, he gave a commencement speech at a university that was remarkably profound and very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So I want to read to you some of his words from that speech. Quote, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And he continues, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. That's David Foster Wallace. Now, I'm beginning the sermon with a serious quote from a real-life tragedy, because what we're going to talk about today is that serious. And David Foster Wallace was right. We all worship something. And since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world and entered the human experience, our default setting is to worship created things, and worshiping anything other than the creator will just eat us alive. So David Foster Wallace got halfway there. And he understood whatever you worship is going to consume you. But he didn't get all the way to God. Now, our story today uh, in Genesis 29 and 30, it's a story about two sisters named Leah and Rachel. I'm sure you've heard of them. They're um, both married to one man at the same time, married to Jacob. But this is not a story about complicated relationships. And Rachel is struggling for many, many years to have children, but it's not a story about childbearing or infertility. It's a story about idolatry. That's what this is actually about. And we're going to see how this insatiable need for anything other than our creator that we all have experienced leaves us empty, leaves us unsatisfied, looking for more and more. And then by God's grace, we're going to look at how we can actually be satisfied. That's, that's where we're going to go today. So let's read the text now. It's a lengthy reading, but it's a good story. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31, and we'll read through chapter 30, verse 24. Uh, 
if I can find my verse. There it is. All right. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for illumination. Father, this is your word, and we're your people. So would you send your spirit down with largesse today 
to shed abroad in our hearts the love of Christ and to shine the light of Christ on your word that we may glorify him and love him more dearly. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, before uh, we kind of get into the meat of it, I just want to give a few brief comments of explanation for a long reading and a complicated ancient text. Um, four, <laughs> I think. First is that the names, it, it feels weird in English, you know, God has judged me, Dan. It doesn't make sense for us. In Hebrew, it all makes sense, right? Because, you know, the word uh, Dan is the word for judged, and the word, uh, you know, Zebulun is the word for honor, and the word Naphtali is the word for I have wrestled. So all these names are kind of representing the hopes and dreams of the mothers for those kids and for themselves. So that makes more sense when you kind of see that fall into place. But the second thing, uh, quickly, is mandrakes. Probably like, what's going on with the mandrakes? Um, I'm just going to say this briefly and leave it at that. In the ancient world, they're thought to be an aphrodisiac. So bartering Jacob for mandrakes, you can get the picture from there. Um, thirdly, God remembers at the end. I just want to be clear, he never forgot. Old Testament language of remembering is covenantal language. It's not memory and forgetting. So God is acknowledging here that Rachel is now a part of the covenant family, the family of Abraham with whom he made this promise that they'll, through that family line, he'll save the world, that through this line, eventually the Messiah would come, Jesus would come. So he's treating her as part of the covenant, and he decides that now is the time to rally himself and apply his covenant promises to her in, in time and space for her in that moment. That's what it means to remember in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Um, and then lastly, uh, we got to talk about bigamy and polygamy just for a second. Having more than one wife. This story isn't here to say that's okay. Just to clear up that discomfort. Uh, Jacob was wrong to marry more than one wife. Now, there's, there's no Old Testament law that straight up says that because it's so obvious from page one of the Bible that we don't need a law to tell us. The creation order, when God created Adam and Eve in Eden, he instituted marriage as one man and one woman. That's it. And any deviation from that pattern is not in accordance with God's design and plan for this world. So just even in these 29 chapters of Genesis of the Bible so far, we know that Jacob had already not acted according to the will of God in marrying multiple wives. And furthermore, in Leviticus, which, you know, written by Moses, both of these books, Leviticus 18.18 uh, 18 reads this, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. So, right, at least Moses is looking back and going, let's codify that this was a really bad idea. This didn't go well for them. So please don't mistake this story as a blessing on bigamy or polygamy. Um, again, like I said, this isn't about fundamentally complicated relationships. The Bible is very comfortable as the divinely inspired word of God with all kinds of human fingerprints on it. He's very comfortable taking all of the mess of our sin and telling us the most beautiful story through it without making all the mess good and okay. All right, those are my caveats. With those out of the way, here's the roadmap for what we're talking about today. Just two points. Uh, point number one is the desert of idolatry, the desert of idolatry. And point number two 
is springs of eternal life. So let's jump into point number one, the desert of idolatry. Proverbs 30.15 is where the title for this sermon comes from. It's my first provocatively titled sermon at Christ Church. Probably won't be my last. I enjoy it. It's called The Leech Has Two Daughters, Give and Give. Laban is Leah and Rachel's father, and in this story, he is a leech. Laban is a parasite. He has attached himself to Jacob and is literally sucking him dry. I think in the, in the text we'll look at next week, or maybe in the next couple weeks, we'll see that Laban comes to Jacob and goes, I, I have perceived by divination that the Lord has enriched me because I'm in connection with you. That's a parasite, okay? Laban is a leech, and he has two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and they both live up to these proverbial names, give and give. That's what we're going to talk about. In the beginning of our story, we find right off the bat that Rachel has all of Jacob's affection. Jacob loves Rachel and, and really can't spare a thought for Leah. And so Leah is lonely, uh, isolated. Being, being lonely when you're alone is hard. Being lonely when you're in a marriage is the worst. And that's what Leah's feeling. And we have sympathy for that. But her heart's cry is give, give. It's not enough. I must have his love. I'll do anything. If I was just loved by my husband, then everything would be okay. And meanwhile, Rachel, she's got Jacob's affection. Jacob's on fire for Rachel. And she's got the looks and it's not enough. She says, give, give me children. She literally says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Eventually, as the story goes on, this kind of tragedy unfolds through 11 sons and one daughter. We find that Leah seems to stop needing Jacob's affection and love and starts finding another kind of chasm of emptiness inside. She finds that she needs the respect of her peers now. I think this is really um, <laughs> modern and relevant for me. In verse uh, 17, she names, so she gives her, uh, her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a, at this point, fourth wife, right? And says, I'm going to have children through her, which is kind of normal in the ancient world, not okay in the Bible. And the second child of Zilpah, she names him Asher, which is the Hebrew word for happy. Here's what she says, why she names him that. She says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. <laughs> That's like Instagram before Instagram. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I base my happiness on other people thinking I'm okay. It's okay if you're on Instagram. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> but, but that's, Leah's heart has shifted from give me my husband's love to like give me everyone else's perception of me having my husband's love and therefore being happy. Do you see the emptiness that just, you just keep piling stuff in and it's never enough? And over time, Leah ends up bartering away the, her son's mandrakes that Reuben gets from the field for just one, one more night with Jacob. And so she stopped desiring the love of her husband. She doesn't want him as lover anymore. She wants him as commodity, as thing to be traded around and hired. Another add-on to make her life worthwhile. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Leah and Rachel are both insatiable. 
And this insatiable demand for more and more, the belief that if I just had that one thing or a little bit more of that thing, then I would be okay. Or this, if I don't get that, then I'll die. That feeling, the Bible has a word for that, and it's idolatry. That's what we're talking about. Idolatry is not usually so obvious, even in the Bible, as bowing down to a statue, right? Yes, that is idolatry. We don't do that. But idolatry is something far more insidious and deep in us. Idolatry in the Bible is living your life based on the idea that anyone or anything other than God can bring you lasting happiness and satisfaction. So we're all idolaters on some level, or we have been. So to put it another way, idolatry is looking to anything but God to fill your emptiness. As we try out these things to fill the void, love of your spouse, kids, alcohol, drugs, pornography, entertainment, you name the thing, even good things, right? As we try them out, we find that they just leave us more empty. We can never quite get enough of them. So we find that our hearts are actually parasitic. Our hearts are like leeches, looking for something to grab onto and drain it dry so we can stay alive, so we can feel satisfied. And we say, give, give. It's never going to be enough. Let me read you the whole proverb, Proverbs 30, 15 through 16. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, that's the grave, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. So that list of, of four things in this proverb that are never satisfied, four insatiable things, uh, because I try to keep sermons under an hour, I can't, I'm not going to go through all four, but we're going to pick one. I pick number three. The land never satisfied with water. In other words, idolatry is a desert. 500 years ago, John Calvin said rightly that our hearts are idol factories. We're just churning out new idols all the time if left to ourselves. Another way to say that would be to say my heart is a desert. It's a desert. I'm constantly looking for my external circumstances to change and bring me some satisfaction, like for rain to come and change how I feel inside. But if you've seen the kind of, you know, parched desert ground that's all cracked and dry, you could pour so much water on it. And in the desert heat, give it a minute, it's going to look like it hasn't seen a drop in years. Deserts are insatiable. It just drinks it up and it's never enough. And we see that in our story with both of the leech's daughters. Sons aren't enough. Jacob's love is not enough. God isn't enough for them. There does seem to be um, some sort of a high point in the story. Uh, you know, I, if you've been to Sunday school and studied this at some point in the past, you probably know what that high point is. It's the birth of Judah. Her, Leah's fourth son, remember her, her first three sons, basically she names them as if to say, surely now my husband will love me. I've given him another son. And with Judah, she finally says, you know what? I'm going to praise the Lord this time. I'm going to stop looking for satisfaction in my husband's love. She's right. It's, it's like she finally got it. She finally tried hard enough. But she backslid, didn't she? 
Like that, that's just four of her sons. She's got a whole bunch. And it goes right back to her old ways. She found new idols to bow to. She found new things to try to slake her thirst with. It's really important. It's really important to understand that Leah got it right and it didn't fix her. What I'm saying is, you can try hard enough to be satisfied in God all day long, and you can be correct, and it won't be enough, because trying harder isn't how you get better. You get better through Jesus. Jesus did what you cannot do in your efforts to renovate you from the inside. The thing is, with that David Foster Wallace quote that we started with, you know, he said, our default setting is just to worship things that will destroy us, which means we don't need software. We don't need a software update. We need new hardware. We need to be rewired from the inside out so that our default setting is no longer going to destroy us. That doesn't come by trying harder. Just not how that works. You need someone else to do it for you. So the moral of the sermon is not try harder. The moral of the Bible isn't try harder. It's grace. See, Leah didn't need, well, she did need to understand that her satisfaction comes from God. But she didn't need, you know, 20 steps to stepping in the right direction to finally get where she's arrived. She needed to finally admit she couldn't do it. And to let God renovate her by his grace. Moving on, we think about Rachel. We've talked a lot about Leah. She suffers from barrenness all the way through this text up until the very, very end. And you get this big, the narrative is designed, it's a beautiful, beautifully written story. It's designed for us to feel a sense of relief with her, for us to go, oh, finally, the Lord remembered her and listened to her and gave her a child. He opened the womb. It's very descriptive and uh, lovely and refreshing. So the thing that Rachel wanted from the very beginning, she finally gets at the very end. And do you know what she says? She names him Joseph. We're like, yeah, cool, Joseph. We're thinking about Egypt and all that stuff. Um, Prince of Egypt, right? But you know what Joseph means in Hebrew? It basically means this. Give me another one. The name Joseph itself is to say, he's not enough. I got the thing I wanted and it wasn't enough. You're not enough. Our story leaves us with tragedy. That's how it ends. No happy ending. It points us to the beautiful could have beens as we think about what they could have done differently. But it ends with a tragedy. Deserts, just looking for more and more and never saying enough. And I wonder if your story is a bit of a tragedy too so far. I've been through a lot of tragedy like that. And do you know what it feels like to feel empty? I do. And I think if you say no to yourself, you're probably not being honest with yourself. Or you haven't lived long enough. Have you ever gotten your hands around the thing you thought would make you happy and it left you feeling blah? Right? Well, if so, I have very good news for you. Two bits of very good news. Here's the first bit. If your life is a tragedy, you've got to know that God redeems tragedy. 
He doesn't bless our sin, but he take, when, we, when we give ourselves to him, he takes our worst and actually brings glory out of it. Even though the story doesn't go well and doesn't end well yet, we've just read about the birth of the sons of Israel. These are 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Like This is how it all started. There's a wonderful plan in store for them. Rachel's son, Joseph, the one who's not enough for her, he will literally save the world in the book of Genesis. He's going to stand forever as an incredible picture of Jesus, one of the most profound and direct patterns for the Christ that we find in the Old Testament. He's going to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh and feed the world. I mean, that's redeeming tragedy. And her other son, who will be born in a few chapters, Benjamin, uh, has two incredible people in his line. The first king of Israel comes from this lowly last-born son, Benjamin, of Rachel, King Saul. And another Saul comes from Benjamin, too. And we know him as Paul, Saul of Tarsus. See, all the way, they, they didn't know it, but God had remarkable eternal plans for how to redeem their tragedy. And don't forget Leah, because the blood of that leech's daughter coursed through the veins of Judah, King David, and Jesus of Nazareth. God knows how to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So there's no tragedy in your life, even if the tragedies of your own making, that can disqualify you or overwhelm or overpower the grace of God in your life to work it for something beautiful. The second bit of good news is that all the emptiness inside of you is fillable. It really is. So that takes us to our second point, springs of eternal life. In the last few sermons, we've spent a ton of time in John chapter 4. Um, I'm aware of that. Humor me once more. Please uh, turn your Bibles if you've got them with you to John 4. You can look at the screen. And let me set the scene. Um, Jesus goes to Jacob's well, right? It says that straight up, that he went to the well that Jacob dubbed, Jacob's well. And he meets a Samaritan woman uh, who's coming to draw water. And the woman is a desert. She has a gaping emptiness inside of her that she has been looking to men to fill. So she's had five husbands, is living with a sixth man, and currently, when Jesus meets her, has so much shame and guilt in her life that she's entirely isolated. See, women didn't go to draw water at high noon when it's like 120 degrees Fahrenheit out there. The reason she went is because she couldn't go with everyone else. She'd been ostracized from her community. Too much shame to be around others because of the tragedy that she wrought in her life, trying to fill an emptiness. And this emptiness inside of her is represented in this story by thirst. She's thirsty. She, Jesus is coming and asking her for a drink, but we find that she's actually the one with an insatiable thirst. So this is what Jesus says to her, John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is talking about the water that he gives, not the water from the well. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water Jesus gives, will be thirsty. I'm sorry, that's the well. Everyone who drinks of the well water will be thirsty again. We know that to be true. 
You know, you work hard in the yard, you come in, you take a big drink of water, work hard in the yard, you're thirsty again, right? Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Think about that image. Jesus doesn't just hand you a cup. He makes you a spring. See, a desert waits for rain. It waits for water from an external source. But a spring is an internal source. If you have a spring of living water in you, then it can be hot as blazes outside. Your circumstances can be anything, and you'll have life and satisfaction because you'll have Christ. Jesus promised this empty woman of Samaria and me and you, he promised that if we ask him, he'll satisfy us. You can take that one to the bank. And that's the kind of satisfaction that Paul has, contentment, so that he can be shipwrecked and beaten and all kinds, go through the most horrible things, beaten within an inch of his life a billion times. And he's like, no, I'm happy. I'm good. All that stuff doesn't matter to me. You know, I mean, I get a paper cut <laughs> and I think, oh, that's it. I can't handle anymore. Paul gets beaten within an inch of his life. He says, I have Christ. I can literally face anything. Paul's not special. Christ is special, which means if you ask him and he gives you a spring of eternal life welling up in you, you can face anything with him, any circumstance. So Leah thought she needed love from her husband. Rachel thought she needed children. You and I think we need any number of things, but what we really need is God. That's it. So don't forget, and we've sung about it and prayed about it this morning, we, everyone in this room is a creature. And I don't mean beastly. What I mean is we're created. You have a creator, which means you were made with a, with a design. You're designed by a creator to be in right relationship with that creator, to worship God. And when we put anything but God on that throne in our hearts, we will feel broken, right? Because it's like trying to use a microwave as a dishwasher. It's not meant for that. It's not going to work. Our emptiness is the result of expecting created things to do what only the creator can do. And when we put it that way, isn't it kind of absurd? <laughs> Why do we expect these things to satisfy us when they're made for us, not us for them? God is the one who satisfies. God is the one who gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And God is the one who can make us eternally content, happy, full of joy. And he will do it despite our circumstances. So you don't need a pay raise to make you happy. Uh, you don't need a, a car that runs better. You don't need a spouse. You don't need a life of comfort, lower mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. You need the love of God poured out in your heart through the power of the gospel. That's what we need. And if you have the love of God in Christ, that's enough.
the desert of your life will never become an oasis through external circumstance change. It just won't. And I'm repeating that a lot because we're grinding our, all of us are grinding our gears to try to get life to a spot where we can be happy. My wife knows this. I'm a perpetual furniture rearranger because when I get really stressed out, I think, well, maybe if I just reorganize my house, I'll feel settled. No, I don't. That's why I'm a perpetual furniture rearranger. I mean, what furniture are you rearranging in your life thinking that's going to fix it? Leah wanted the love of her husband, but there was a want below her want, a longing below the longing, and that was for the love and acceptance of God. She just couldn't see it. Rachel wanted children. The longing below her longing is exactly the same. What you want most deeply, literally all of you and me, is the love of God. Some of us just don't know that yet. About 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine, uh, or Augustine, if saying Augustine sounds pretentious, uh, he said this, and he's right. He said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you, Lord. It's still true of you and of me. Until we rest in Christ, our hearts are restless. Until we receive the love of God in the gospel, our lives are a desert. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 said this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, buy satisfaction, buy happiness without paying for them. Well, how does that work? You ever bought something without paying for it? The only way you can do that is if someone else has paid for it. Exactly. You can only find real satisfaction when you see that Jesus became a desert to give you the oasis. No one was as satisfied as Christ in eternity past with the Father. You've all seen the sweet marriage. Some of you are in wonderful marriages. And we know in a marriage, a husband and wife will grow together beautifully without sin. But with sin, there's tension and frustration and all that. But imagine the sweetest marriage you've ever seen. All the sin removed. Imagine how much love over 50 years of marriage. Imagine the father-son bond or a mother-daughter bond without sin, growing in sweetness and love for 40 years. What about eternity? The love between the father and the son is unfathomable. And Jesus gave it up and became empty. so that you can taste it. And you will never be satisfied until you see that. So let's stop chasing bread that doesn't satisfy. And let's look to the cross.
because that's where he paid the price for all the things that keep you from the love of God. Everything that puts a barrier between you and the longings below your longings, Jesus got rid of it for you at his own expense. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. In other words, if you think your life without Jesus is satisfying you, then you're not ready. And you won't even want him. Like Ray Ortland used to say, you might need to go sin your way down to the bottom more. It's not permission to sin. That's just being honest. If you think that you're fine without Jesus, then you can't want this yet, but by the grace and power of God. And I pray he does that in our hearts today. But if you've tasted what the world has to offer and it turns to ash and gravel in your mouth, then there is a fountain that will satisfy you. And he's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not waiting for you. Jesus isn't saying, I'll satisfy you when you stop doing these three things and start meeting my expectations. He loved us when we were unlovable. He desired us when we were undesirable. And he offered us life when we were dead. He's not looking to fill full hands. He's looking to fill empty hands. And when you finally see that reality, worshiping Jesus isn't going to be a chore anymore. It's not like you have, to serve, you have to serve and worship him because you're a creature and he's a creator. That's true. But when you really see Jesus and the love of God on the cross, like try and stop us from worshiping him. I was sharing this with the band this morning before we played. Roundabouts 1523, the Protestant Reformation is just kicking off. And in a medium-sized church in Basel, Switzerland, uh, Johannes Echolampadius, who's one of my new heroes, great name, Echolampadius is leading a, a normal church service where uh, the, the congregation didn't sing. Hundreds of years, the congregation hadn't been singing. Did you know that? It was just a little choir singing in Latin, which no one understood. So the pastor would preach, the choir would respond in singing in Latin, and everyone else is just expected to sit there quietly. He preached the love of Christ from the Gospel of Mark, and these German-Swiss churchgoers started standing up and singing at the top of their lungs, and he couldn't stop them. And then he realized, I don't want to stop them. They, they, they received the love of Christ and wanted to worship. And, you know, from that day, that's what, we've, that's what it is to be Protestant, is to be free worshipers of Christ. That's why we sing in church, because God, through his grace, gave us that rediscovery 500 years ago. That's a macrocosm of you when you see Christ. Try and stop you from singing when you get the gospel deep down in your heart. Mm. All right, let's pray and then we'll prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, I am overwhelmed, overcome with awe at you right now and I praise you and thank you for sending your spirit to minister to me. Um, and I pray that um, your spirit will continue to shine your light on all of our hearts so that we can see your love and be fully 
really satisfied. We thank you for this um, text and for Laban and Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah and that these were real people that you set your love on and you really brought unimaginable good through imperfect, messy, sinful rebels like them. So we can trust you to do that with us as well. We put ourselves in your hands now and those things that we have against our brothers and sisters before we come to your table, we give them to you and ask you to help us forgive. And those sins that we've been clinging on to stubbornly, before we come to your table, we let go. And we ask you to help us repent because we love you more. And the siren call doesn't hold the allure it once had because of your sweeter song. And the ashen bread of this world doesn't tempt us anymore like it did because we've tasted the bread of life. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Please take a moment, prepare your hearts for the table.